Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening again in the future. I am Paul, and as usual, we have my co-host Doug with me. Hey Doug, how's it going? Hey Paul, I'm doing good. Busy with work and family and just keep plugging along routine stuff, but it's all good. Yep, that's awesome. That's awesome. Busy time in your life for sure. We have a new co-host joining us this week as uh, Dirk's away on assignment at Innerschutz 2020, which is happening in 2022 in Germany. And uh, so he won't be joining us today, but we have Zach, who Zach joined us on our tailboard talk in uh in june in may and uh he's a municipal and industrial firefighter who's been helping us with the production of the podcast he's got a bit of a audio background production audio background stepping in front of the mic for this recording hey guys hi zach how you doing good good just got off the 14 days and uh it's my second day off here so looking nice. forward to the next 10 days off <laughs> lots of stuff you got to do or are you gonna have some downtime yeah, it's between here and uh, my municipal fire department, and uh, you know, just trying to have that uh, family life, that fire family life balance that they talk so much about. Oh so, yeah, well, yeah. no kid, no kids, yeah. just the no kids, yeah. Other, I mean, and the dog. Yeah, yeah. life is <laughs> so, easy, man. You're in the rock here, <laughs> right, Doug? Exactly. Oh, don't even get me started about work-life no. balance. No comment, he says. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's me, the retired guy. Like, well, we went camping last week, and we got home, and you know, cleaned up the camper. And yeah, Zach and... is the balance. Hey, I I do nothing but work. You haven't worked forever, and Zach's oh, in the middle ouch. doing a little bit of both. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> well, what's new? Uh, what have you guys been doing, or reading, or watching, or playing? Well, now that the Oilers are out of the playoffs, I don't really watch hockey anymore. I watched some Blue Jays the other day, but between the two little kids and, and doing some work and whatever, I started, I fired up my Thunderbird the other day. I'm going to try to get that back on the road. I saw and a picture of, yeah. of you and the little one, uh, yeah. you know, at the battery or something. Putting a new battery in. Yeah, it's been sitting for a while, so it needed a new battery. Nice, nice. What year is your Thunderbird back again? On the road for the summer. What's up? What year is it? Uh, 1990. Nice. My nice. dad bought an original, passed it down to me, and now I'm going to try to get it back on the road and drive it around. Perfect. Exciting. It doesn't Exciting. need much, though. It shouldn't take much. Just a little coolant system leak somewhere that we got to find and fix, and then it should be good to go. So that's. I do want to say this. It, it looks like a normal car. <laughs> no, no. I was like, what is this? <laughs> you're, you're like born in 1995. Don't have a clue about anything. 1994, thank you very much. Oh, was... oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at a motorcycle I saw yeah, the other day on Facebook or something, the 1988, and I was going like, oh, that would be cool. It's a, it's a rare model for North America, so I'm going, oh, maybe I should buy that. Anyway. Zach's just not old enough to appreciate things yet. Oh, it looks like a normal uh, car. Well, you wouldn't know a nice-looking car if it ran you over. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'd be getting ran over. So I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> Any good books or movies or games? Yeah. 
Any good books or movies or games you guys have been watching? Uh, Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. If you guys oh, I haven't that. seen it yet. I'm I'm it's... I'm kind of averse to sequels, so oh, I'm I haven't even this. seen the first Top Gun yet. Okay, oh, well. where you been, man? Under a rock? I don't really. I'm not a huge movie guy. I don't really care. Oh. Friends off at this point, I think. <laughs> Friends off. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Tom Cruise is a weirdo, anyways, so I don't really care too much about his. They'll probably try to sue us now that I said that, but yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, okay. I'll mute you in post. I'll mute you in uh, post. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I've been playing that stupid uh, SnowRunner game. Oh yeah. Night. When my wife goes to bed, I play that, and uh, been reading a book about. An admiral, British admiral in the uh, in the navy in World War Two, Admiral Cunningham. So that's been good. Yeah, mm-hmm. right on. I've st- I've started reading Chief Lasky's book, Pride and Ownership, but very like chapter two I'm on, I think. So nice, nice. Hoping to get into it more. Usually I listened to I listened to Chief Dunn on right. a podcast this week. Uh, he's got a new book out or a redone book or something that's supposed to be good. I was listening to a little bit of that. Okay, well, here uh, at the Emergency Traffic Podcast, uh, we picked July to be an industrial incident month. We're going to focus on a few industrial line of duty death incidents. The first one is from almost 50 years ago, uh, which I saw is also 50 years since that Vendome fire in uh, in New York, uh, New York City, the hotel. Anyway, way back in 1973, this was a significant event in the North American Fire Service. It was a real wake-up call to the dangers of pressurized cylinders, especially if they're containing flammable gases or liquids. This event is known as the Kingman or Doxall explosion, which occurred at the Doxall gas distribution plant located in Kingman, Arizona. It's a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion, otherwise known as a blevy. I'm sure we all covered this a little bit in uh, 1072 or 472 training as a new firefighter. Uh, it does remind me, though, of the uh, Warwick, Quebec incident that occurred 20 years later. So obviously the word didn't get out there, uh, you know, in 1993 that we published back in February, episode three, where there was four firefighters killed and eight more injured as a result of a liquid gas, propane gas tank levy at a rural farm with a thousand gallon tank. Do you remember that? Did I do that one on my own, I think? No, I I, I think, me me for sure. I don't know if Dirk was there or not. Yeah, yeah so, it, and I remember like way back in Dalmany in 1986 or 88, watching a video a blevy video that the government of Canada had produced for firefighters. Did you ever, did you ever watch that? Don't Maybe. know. Who knows? I found it when I was watching videos about this Kingman explosion, because there's some footage on there that's on the, on the video. Anyway, the podcast takes us to Kingman, Arizona. Kingman's a small city on the Western edge of Arizona, just North of the intersection of the three States of Arizona, Nevada, and California along historic Route 66 Highway, which was along the Beale Wagon Road, which I didn't know that until I was researching this. Anybody, have you, either of you guys down, been down to Arizona or Kingman? No, I've been not to the Dam. That's the closest I got to Arizona. Been to the dam? Yeah, right. Yeah. My, my question about Kingman, though, is it part of the Sun Valley Automatic Aid Agreement? I don't think so, but that's a good question. 
Because it's not it's not in the Sun Valley. It's two hours, three hours away. Well, it doesn't matter. According to you, it should still be part of the agreement. Here we go. Here yeah, we go. Ding, yeah, ding, it, ding. It should <laughs> be. Uh, alarm. Yeah, it should be, but I don't know that it is. Um, I've been to Kingman. Uh, we drove through there. My wife and I drove down the West Coast in 2008, and uh, we came back up along Route 66 just to uh, to drive a little bit of it. And I kind of wanted to go to Kingman just to say I'd been there because I remembered this incident for years that uh, it happened there. I'm sure your wife loved that you had to make a pit stop for a fire-related event. Like <laughs> yeah, it, it went over well for sure. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it was along the way. And then over to the Hoover Dam and into Vegas for a few days yeah. is kind of the route we, the route we took. The, uh, the Beale Road was a wagon road that was surveyed back in the 1857-59 as a route to the West Coast. Of course, the gold rush and stuff was going on back then, so they had to have a wagon road. And in around, uh, and this is where the wagon road went, which is what started uh, Kingsman, Kingman. In around 1882, a railway from Winslow, Arizona. Any Eagles fans here? Winslow, Arizona, standing on a corner? When what come by, but a, uh, a girl in a Ford, flatbed Ford. That's before my time. Slowing down to take a look at me. Don't start singing, Paul. <laughs> All right. Uh, the railway to Winslow to Beale Springs, which was a traditional indigenous water source, now a ghost town near Kingman, was built and supervised by Lewis Kingman, hence the name for the railway siding, which is all that was there, really, uh, called Kingman. The community was the site of an Air Force training base in World War II and grew to a population of 7,300 people in 1970, according to the U.S. Census. Did you help survey the road in the 1850s? <laughs> not quite. Not quite. No. I, I tried to sell them a fire truck, though. Yeah. No. <laughs> Horse and wagon, really. <laughs> Horse and wagon. Uh, as I mentioned, I visited there a little bit, uh, 80 miles southeast of Las Vegas and 184 miles northwest of Phoenix. I see Las Vegas got a new fire chief uh, uh, recently here, so that's interesting. Anyway, the department, the fire department in Kingman, in 1921, it was established. Uh, and in 1973, it was a combination fire service with six full-time firefighters and 36 volunteers operating out of two fire stations with one career firefighter on duty in each station at all times. This service level was started in 1968, just a few years earlier. Kingman had four engines in service at the time of the incident, as well as a rescue truck. According to photographs and a video I've seen, these looked like the cab over commercial Fords and maybe an American LaFrance custom with a mother, open mother-in-law seat in the back. You know that, I don't know if you remember those, like Lacombe had. It's called a jump seat for the rest of us. A, ju a jump seat. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's crazy yeah, to me probably... that like it had seventy three hundred people, which is smaller than Lacombe, but yep. six full time firefighters, two stations, four engines. Like right. that's more than Lacombe has now, and Lacombe's got like probably pushing thirteen, fourteen thousand people. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting comparison. And, and some full-time staff, like, you know, more yeah, than indeed. more than just a chief, right? Yeah. But then, is it I mean, a regional, is it a regional fire department either? Is it a county-run fire department? No, I don't think so. I don't think no. so. There's not much once you get out of the towns down there, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it's dry, arid, desert area. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at eastern Canada or eastern United States or a lot of the United States, 
having some staff in the stations is quite normal all the time. Even like Ontario, you get a little city, you're going to have, you know, a few full-time staff in, but they do a lot more inspections and stuff like that. Even BC, there's more full-time staff in fire stations than in Alberta because of the mandate of the uh, province for municipalities to do all inspections. And there's actual requirements to meet. So you'll often see a chief, deputy chief, fire inspector, et cetera, which we don't see here as much. Okay. The uh, building in question here, the incident occurred at the Doxall gas distribution plant, which was located about 70 feet southwest of Route 66 Highway on the outskirts of Kingman, about two miles from the downtown core of the town. The plant consisted of a small office building and two above-ground liquid pro propane storage tanks, one of about 30,000 gallons capacity and one of 18,000 gallons capacity. The two tanks were behind the office and about 200 feet, 60 meters from the highway. Just for reference, a 30,000 gallon propane tank is about 70 feet long, 10 feet in diameter, about the size of a rail car, similar in, in capacity. Uh, when it's full, it would hold about 24,000 gallons of liquid propane gas. Your basic 20-pound home or RV liquid propane gas tank holds about 5 gallons of propane. So yeah, that's about 5,000 20-pound tanks that are in that, uh, in that rail car or that storage tank. You guys have those at your in your areas that you work? Maybe, Zach, industry, do you have a big uh, propane uh, tank storage? No. Yeah, we do actually. It's just outside of our camp, uh, so that's a big high high hazard that we have, you know, to to kind of deal with there. Um, it's it's relatively uh, close to our camp as well, so kind of a concern for us if something should happen there, right? But right, right. Yeah, I suppose it's there's nothing around it though, so it can't you know catch fire or anything like. There's no no uh, class A fuels or. Oh, there there is. <laughs> Oh, okay. Not yeah, fire smarted. Yeah. yeah, no, not 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 the best. So, yeah. friend of mine, uh, friend of mine, a guy we we all know actually is a truck driver, and he hauls propane and butane a lot. Uh, he was mm -hmm. doing a shutdown for a refinery in Edmonton. Uh, they were doing some sort of a turnaround, so his company had to haul 150 to two to 300 or some uh, truckloads of propane from the plant to a nearby terminal to load it in rail cars because the pipeline that normally does that would be would be shut down and uh so they were using trucks you know to haul all this propane so we you know average people have no concept of how much of this stuff is going around and and how, how yeah. volatile it is yeah this uh, facility had numerous uh, portable fire extinguishers around the site and uh, the nearest public fire hydrant was 1200 foot feet north of the site which is quite a ways away uh, your average fire truck maybe carries a thousand feet of, of uh, supply hose. So um, within the uh, thousand feet of the site was a tire shop, a country kitchen restaurant, which is a very popular chain in Western United States. Uh, I used to work down there quite a bit and that was a, a popular spot to go for, uh, for brunch or breakfast or anything. Uh, and, uh, and a truck stop. Okay, the incident occurred July 5th, 1973, a typical summer day in Arizona, sunny and hot, with temperatures reaching 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 Celsius. Usually there were four employees working at the facility, a clerk, the manager in the office, and two operators. On this warm July afternoon, there were only three people on the site. The two operators were in the process of unloading a propane from a rail car that was staged on a nearby siding. 
Oh yeah, I want to talk. The reason for the 24,000 gallons of propane in the tank instead of 30 is there's always room for expansion, right? So the mm-hmm. top part of the tank is is vapor space, and so the if the car is sitting out on a rail siding and it's really warm out, the gas is expanding, so it has a place to uh, place to go uh, without overpressuring the car and causing relief valves to to go, which actually yeah. will happen here later on. The uh, Tank car was staged on the rail siding uh, through an overhead loading rack and underground piping to one of the storage tanks on site is how they were unloading. The propane cars at the time typically were uninsulated and all the valves were located in the dome on the top of the car. During the operation, one of the operators noticed a leak at an offloading hose connection. The operator tried to tighten the connection by striking a brass or aluminum non-sparking wrench with a hammer. But in spite of efforts to stop the leak, it continued. And somehow during the tightening operation, perhaps the hammer struck a steel fitting or part of the rail car and ignited the leaking flammable gas and air mixture. This ensuing uh, fire, uh, both operators fell from on top of the tank car with, with their clothing on fire, resulting in severe burns to both of them. One operator was fatally injured from the burns and the fall. And another man ran to the man ran to the office and was then driven to the Arizona uh, Public Safety Office, which would be like the Highway Patrol, about a quarter mile away, to report the fire. So they probably wanted to get out of there and not report it from the office, right? Take them to help and call it in. Kingman Fire initially received the call at about 1:57 p.m. and arrived on the scene just three minutes later. Doesn't have any information of how many guys were on the trucks and stuff in this uh, very old report. I got this all from media reports on the fire. There is no official uh, NIOSH or National U.S. Fire Administration report that I could find or Chemical Safety Board. I was reading somewhere that there was 10 10 guys that initially responded. Yeah, that comes up later with how many were were within 150 feet of the the fire. So the... uh, Immediately, uh, calls for mutual aid went out to the neighboring Halapula Fire Department. Uh, The fire spread and quickly, and although the safety relief valve was operational and operating intermittently, due to the burning propane for the damaged transfer hoses, flames were impinging on the outside of the upper tank space, vapor space, which is exactly what happened in that Warwick, Quebec. The relief valve was operating, operated numerous times, but the fire in the building beside the tank uh, was affecting the uh, affecting the tank. I believe large propane tanks, if I remember code correctly, they have to be at least 10 or 15 feet from any building uh, mm. in case the building was to catch fire, not to affect the tank. Okay, just a little learning moment here as part of the podcast, of course. Uh, since it's such an old an old incident, but something just for everybody to be aware of. So if we can remember that every class two, so that's a compressed gas tank, has approximately 20% of vapor space above the liquid to allow for expansion during shipping and storage. Due to temperature changes, the tank shell around the vapor space is the most dangerous area because it's susceptible to overheating or loss of strength from flame impingement without that compressed gas liquid to cool the steel shell. NFPA statistics show that pressurized tanks can fail from impingement within the first 8 to 30 minutes of flame exposure. 
with 58% of tank failures occurring with the first, within the first 15 minutes or less. In the Kingman case, firefighters arrived about eight minutes after the fire started and another eight minutes passed before any water was being applied to the exposed area of the tank. Same thing that happened in, in Warwick, Quebec, is uh, the relief valve was operating. They were getting lines going. And before they even got water, right when they got water on the tank, actually it failed. And they were thinking that maybe the cold water on the hot tank caused the premature failure of the weld. Hmm. Initial firefighting operations were an engine with a 1,000-gallon tank, 4,000-liter booster tank, was uh, positioned about 75 feet away from the burning rail car and two one-inch 25-millimeter booster lines were placed to cool the tank shell. These lines were only flowing about 30 gallons per minute, 115 liters per minute each. NFPA recommends that at least 500 gallons a minute, 2,000 liters a minute, continuous flow be applied to the tank to cool the metal in this situation. So obviously inadequate water, but of course they only had 1,000 gallons on the tank. That would have gave them two minutes if they actually had set up a two and a half or something than a, and a monitor or, or even a hand monitor. While the firefighters cooled the tank with water from the booster tank from the first engine, the other engine was stretching a pair of two and a half inch uh, 65 millimeter lines to the nearest fire hydrants. Of course, uh, 73 before a uh, large diameter hose was popular and therefore everybody ran uh, two inch lines. Uh, some departments ran three inch lines for supply lines. I think Edmonton here uh, used to run uh, three inch supply lines uh, years ago before large diameter hose came, came on, the, on the scene. Uh, the hydrant, of course, as I mentioned, was 1,200 meters or, th or 360 meters, 1,200 feet away with the plan to supply a deluge gun that was placed 50 feet from the tank. Uh, one of these hose lays was completed, but the second engine ran out of hose for the second hydrant lay, of course. Uh, Kingman Police and the Arizona Highway Patrol were setting up roadblocks, pushing people back for a 1,000 meter or 1,000 foot, 300 meter perimeter. Firefighters were charging the first two and a half hoses to the deluge gun when the tank exploded in a massive fireball, fireball at about 2.10 p.m. An explosion shook the entire town of 7,500 people and shockwaves were felt up to five miles away. A huge fireball over 1,000 feet, 300 meters in diameter, was seen from far away. You can check out the YouTube videos. There's only one video of the fire uh, on, online that I was able to find. The one end of the tank car, weighing about three tens, because it's split in two, rocketed a quarter mile away, 400 meters down the railway tracks, leaving a 10-foot, three-meter deep crater where it was initially placed, where it was staged. The ground-level fireball erupted from the exploding tank, extending about 200 meters, uh, 200 feet, 60 meters, in all directions. And the fireball and radiant heat ignited the five other businesses in the area the tire shop, the restaurant, and the truck stop, in addition to the Doxall office, of course, which was only a few, uh, hundred, few hundred feet away. The radiant heat was so intense that the relief valve on the nearby 300,000-gallon storage tank opened and released propane into the atmosphere due to rising heat and pressure within the storage tank. Fortunately, this propane did not ignite and dramatically increased the size of the fire. I could just you know, can barely imagine what this would be like to be that close to, has any, any of you guys been that close to a large explosion? I mean, Texas A&M, where we would, you know, shoot the flare off into, uh, into the propane cloud, right? Doug, were you there? You've done that? 
Yeah, I've I've seen that happen. Yeah, yeah Zach has too. And yeah. I've never personally been, but uh, I know of a department that they had a condo building under construction fire. So there was propane, a big I don't know what size, but a a bigger propane tank on site there for the pro for the construction crews for their heating and whatever, and it it uh, blevied and took out a balcony on another condo building and a guy was bending over connecting a hose or something and it bounced off the building and went over the guy's head and took out a light standard down the street. So I've personally never been there, but I do know people that have been close to a blevy and it was probably a close call for them. So Crazy. So as it says in the articles, there was about a dozen Kingman firefighters that were within 150 feet or 45 meters of the tank car setting up that monitor and hoses and running those two booster lines and stuff. 11 of them died from severe burns and one of the 12 survived with critical burns. I thought I'd found an article about this fellow talking about it or a, a video or something, but I couldn't find it when I was writing the script. Flaming propane and debris rained down on spectators and buildings in the area. More than 100 people received burns from the explosion and one died. Several area fire departments responded to calls for mutual aid from Lake Havasu City, Mojave Valley, and Bullhead City and set up a command post at the nearby Kingman Fire Station 2. Planes from the Bureau of Land Management dropped fire retardant and helicopters from the Highway Patrol and the nearby Air Force bases helped to fight the fire and evacuate the injured. By about 5.30 p.m., the fires were pretty well all brought under control. Prior to the Yarnell wildfire incident in 2013, this was the worst firefighting disaster in Arizona history. Most of the photographs of the incident, which are available online in the reports, uh, were taken by a Santa Fe railway conductor, Mr. Hank Graham, in the area during the event. They had actually stopped him from moving train cars around and he was just waiting and uh, during the fire. So he took some pictures. He had a camera handy. Not like today where you got one in your pocket with your cell phone all the time. It was a thing if you if you actually had a camera with you in 73. Probably a little, I remember those cameras, a little Kodak Instamatic or something. I had one. <laughs> one more, yeah, yeah. knows what Kodak is. Kodak, I know, I know, I know yeah. The first <laughs> digital camera I had was a Kodak camera too. From work, we had a one digital camera that we used that the, the plant had that we could take pictures with and stuff. Uh, in recent years, uh, liquid propane rail cars are now insulated under an outside metal tank shell to provide some limited protection from radiant heat and flame impingement to potentially increase the time by almost an hour before tank weakness can cause a blevy. A good example of this, of course, was the Gainford rail derailment in Parkland County that occurred in 2013. None of the cars suffered a blevy, although significant flame impingement was present and the cars eventually had to be vented and burned with explosives. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, that video, uh, the blevy Parkland County one. It's, it's, it's very, very good. And it actually shows them venting. It's a venting and burn process, they call it. They put explosive charges on the top and on the bottom of the car and they set them off. And the explosion, uh, of course, opens a hole for it to vent out and provides air to come in from the bottom. And uh, and it, the propane goes up and all burns at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to do it because, they, I mean, otherwise you're waiting weeks for this propane to vent off and burn. So uh, one car actually didn't, and they had to go in after and still and still vent it off. 
the uh, let's see um, so you know learn from the memory of these firefighters be cautious make sure you have adequate water supply if you are going to fight the fire need to make that decision as to what's the life safety risk in the immediate area do you have is it quicker to evacuate rather than to um, to uh, try to fight the fire and, and, and prevent it from from something from happening there's the incident uh, actually one of our fire truck uh, equipment dealers here in Alberta had a propane tank got drilled into in their shop and uh, back I don't know when this was and they evacuated the building and all the, all the occupants and they just got everybody out and the uh, leaking propane in the shop eventually found an ignition source and the building blew up and the building was totally destroyed. No, no fatalities. Uh, I remember I was actually walking around the fire truck plant when it happened. And all of a sudden we saw this big cloud of black smoke in the sky and going like, what was that? And then we heard that it actually was our distributor, our local distributor that had a fire in the shop. It was a school bus that was used as a rescue truck. And they oh. were installing tread plate steps in the uh, in the steps, you know, the stairs to get in uh, to mm. cover up the rubber matting or something. And unbeknownst to them, there was a propane tank underneath the steps, and uh, a worker at the shop drilled into it with a uh, with a metal drill, and all of a sudden propane leaking. And luckily, quick action uh, taken to evacuate everybody. So learn from the memory of these firefighters: uh, William Kaysen, Myron Cox, Roger Hubka. Joseph Chambers III, Marvin Mast, Arthur Stringer, Christopher Sanders, Richard Williams, Frank Henry, John Campbell, Donald Webb, and Alan Hansen. You guys have any thoughts on this uh, event? Well, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't want to second guess them or say anything wrong, but I think today, if we had something like that, the I don't think we would focus so much on extinguishing the fire as opposed to contain the fire, evacuate people from around the fire that are in the danger zone and uh, just let the propane burn off as much as you can. Let the relief valves do their thing. And you, it's a fuel, uh, the, the fuel burning off is going to put the fire out just as easily as any action we take. So, Whatever's on fire is already destroyed anyways, so just contain it. To, don't let it spread to anything else and just let the fuel burn off and fire though. Yeah, pre preventing the blevy is tough. Zach, what do you think there, industrial guy? Well, you, uh, when we were reading this story, um, at the very beginning there, the, the whole, you know, what caused this it sticks out to me the most, right? Now, in more recent times now, you look at uh, – most plant sites or industrial sites, right? Permitting and, and this, the amount of hazard analysis that goes into anything that happens around this kind of stuff uh, is, is almost like, it's insane the amount that you have to do, right? So there there's a, a field level risk assessment you have to do. There's plans that have to be put in place. You need to have a emergency rescue plan or emergency response procedure. And you need to have, you know, proper fire suppression around this kind of uh, a task that they were doing. So, like to offload onto a, an actual, you know, from a train car to a to a vessel, you'd have to have, you know, by plants uh, procedures, you'd have to have means of fire extinguishment there, you know, to help prevent the this ablevy or or any kind of event like this. So, like for the plant that I'm at, um, we don't do a lot of uh, rail car offloading anymore, but they used to, and you can tell 
um, the amount of fire prevention that was put in for that. So, you know, sprinkler systems, there was, uh, at, all the, the way loading, around at the loading rack, you're thinking. Yeah. You bet. So right rack. away, deluge, yeah. knock it out. Deluge, yeah. yeah. Or we have monitors that are all the way around there as well for this, this type of incident. Um, you were saying that the hydrant nearest to it was, I believe, 1200 feet away. Yeah. So that right there, shout out to me instantly because I mean, that that's a that's a pretty far distance for a hydrant considering that's an area where they know they're going to be offloading so um then you look at you know what if, what might have caused the spark right so you looked at the hammering in plants now you doing any hot work at all there needs to be a permit in place do you have proper guards in and i realize that this is an older you know this is probably pre but but this pre isn't hot this isn't hot work though well is it going to create a spark are you in a are you in an ideal uh, environment then absolutely it's hot work. If it's in an, uh, an the, area the, that... The, the, poten potential. the potential to cause a spark. Absolutely. That would be okay. hot work. Okay, yeah. That's, I always think of hot work as, you know, welding, cutting, grinding. No, it's anything that can cause ignition. So nowadays, like, you could drive a truck onto the plant. That's hot work. Right, right. Yeah, so, there's another one. I watched a video in a chemical safety board. Firefighters weren't injured, but these guys were in, in these two tanks, and they were sandblasting and fixing and whatever and they had a, a drill to mix a paint and the drill caused mm -hmm. a spark uh, yeah. in a confined space and you know there you go yeah it can be simple as simple as you know just changing up the hammer right because now they make different types of hammers now for this thing in particular right where it's a brass right. alloy it's non-striking so like i mean the amount of research that they've done, you know, plants don't want to get sued they don't want to lose money you know over this kind of stuff oh, so. they don't want people to get injured right they're criminally exactly liable. You know, exactly. In Canada, Bill C-42, if you don't have the proper training and equipment, the executives are liable. It's not the people they care about. It's all about the money. No, no, the, no. They don't want the plant shut down. They don't want to have to rebuild. It's all about the money. They, it, they're, no, you got to manage the risk. sites are over-safety now. All about, they don't want lost time, and they don't want to cause money, and they... It, it's not a bad thing I'm saying, but that you can think whatever you want that it's about the people. I can guarantee you the business is about the business and preventing injuries and stuff keeps them making money and that's what they want. But this, I, this, uh, event, this event has probably, <laughs> has probably saved lives since it happened that we don't even know about because it was probably one of the first like, big blevies that spread around the, I mean, it's 40, 50 years ago and we're still talking about it because there hasn't been a bigger one since that's the new one to talk about. It's it. So I'm sure it has. And the other thing is obviously this plant didn't have its own emergency response. They relied on the municipal fire department, which I don't know if that's still the case there, but I know in lots of other places like where Zach works or, they all have their own, even if it's not full-time emergency response on site, they have staff members trained to do it. And the, the, municipal, the nearby municipal departments are only coming in to assist where needed for the event. Right. And they're under the command of the people on site. So like the municipal fire department, it, it's just like the one in Arizona or in Quebec. It, it, the propane stuff's almost more of a danger to the municipal firefighter who isn't around it all the time and doesn't train on it all the time. And they show up to a farm or a rail car or a 
semi-truck, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit, this isn't just a routine call. Where at a plant site, if you have dedicated plant emergency responders, they know what's at their plant, they focus what's at their plant, and that's all they worry about. They don't worry about anything else. So that's... And we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk more about that in the next episode we do. But uh, because it has both the plant fire brigade and the municipal, uh, there was somebody, one of the the big guys in in the fire service, uh, posted last this week on on social media about he went to do a training somewhere at some plant, and and he was so interested to find out that. And I I've experienced this myself. Is that plant firefighters? are all counting on the, the municipal firefighters to come and help them out and to take care of things for them once they get there. And the municipal firefighters are all thinking the same thing is like, well, that's not our problem. That's the plant guys and they know their stuff and they're going to do it. And there's a bit of a, I always find a bit of a, a big gap there in the knowledge and experience that are expectations of each side uh, when that happens. And we had that, we had a, a firefighter, you and I both know actually um, that uh, showed up you know, one evening at a plant, they had a fire. It was on a rooftop a unit of some sort on, a, I think it was on top of their locomotive building. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know, seven or nine o'clock at night. And there's a, there's a fire in this unit and, and our guys show up They they call 911 and, and our guys show up at the gate and say, what do you got? And, and, uh, the guys say, well, there's a fire, you know, on the roof of this building and we don't do, we don't do buildings. So, uh, the plant fire brigade's kind of like, it's your baby. And our guys are going, holy cow, like this, this building is immense. It's a locomotive shop. Uh, what do you mean? It's our baby. And so I've seen that too. So it's a, it's, you have to be aware of that risk. Exactly. Well, exactly. But you keep in mind too, though, is that there's usually these plants that they're, you know, usually farther away from civilization, right? They don't want, you know, the big eyesore or whatever. So sometimes you don't even have a municipal fire department or if you do it's some small town volunteer maybe you know five or six members on it and and that's all you get and they're not coming so you know they the plants try to have an ERT team like Doug was saying earlier where it's the members that, themselves that kind of come out and help the emergency response personnel um, by boasting the numbers but sometimes it's, those guys just aren't available either. I mean, it goes back to know what's in your area, know what you might be called to, uh, know how to deal with these things and what the best procedures are to deal with them. Uh, 1973, big propane cars were not, you know, I guess that common or people didn't realize the risk. Now, now we're hopefully more aware, which is why we're here. So, yeah. As I mentioned before, this is similar to the events that occurred years later in Warwick, Quebec in 93. And also Albert City, Iowa, which is one we haven't done yet, uh, 1998, where two firefighters died and seven others were injured in a rural propane tank suffered a blevy. Uh, propane tanks often use a vaporizer to uh, convert the propane into a vapor from the tanks. And uh, these guys were quadding in a farmyard and hit the vaporizer pipe. And there was a fire at the vaporizer. Fire department comes. They're spraying down the, the tank to try to cool it to prevent the blevy. And uh, all of a sudden, it blew up. And uh, let's say two firefighters died. And there's a great video about this on the uh, U.S. Chemical Safety Board, uh, which is uh, www.csb.gov. That's very good investigation video a description of this event that's a great resource uh, to go for some interesting time if you have time you're on shift you're working or you're you're filling time at home while you're babysitting the kids or whatever uh, you can uh, go to the chemical safety board and watch some of their videos because they've got some really good 
interesting stuff that uh, applies to firefighters for that awareness. Look at I mean, sometimes plants are in a rural area. Here in, in Lacombe County, we've got uh, Dow and Nova in our in our dis- jurisdiction and other plants. And then we have the, the municipal fire departments in the small towns. Or if you look at, uh, you know, Edmonton or Sarnia or Calgary, they've got huge plants. The Hubble Oil Fire in the city of Calgary, uh, you know, was a, was a big event back in, I don't know what year that was, 2010 or 20, 2000. No, 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 earlier than that, 2003. And, I think they were in the 90s. Isn't it late nineties? Maybe uh, I just sold uh, Calgary the big uh, Bronto fifty meter uh, articulating platform, and uh, they were watching watching it at the fire from the, the the fleet center in Calgary was kind of on a hill above where this 99. fire occurred, and it was the ninety the truck was a ninety ninety six I think, and I remember the the tech chief uh, the. Uh, what do they call it in Calgary? Chief engineer was quite concerned that they might burn up this uh, new Bronto at the fire. They actually had to move it and save it from from the fire. They did lose an old an older aerial, uh, mid mount hundred foot aerial at that fire. You know, the, uh, the fire was in August of '99, and Hubboil probably just expected the city to come and take care of the problem. So, just going back to this incident, though, like I was just kind of skimming through here. And and just going back to what actually killed these guys, like obviously the blevy, but like this seems like a an incident that's directly resulting from a lack of pre-planning, and uh, and these guys really didn't have much of a chance at the end of the day, right? If you, you you've got no safety precautions or no safety margins put into place here, um, you know, there's no uh, plant site fire department or do these guys even have the amount of equipment needed to to take on you know this blevy? Was there hydrant supply 1,200 feet away? You know, you, you're looking at all these factors, and uh, they're running hand lines out there. It's like for us in the industrial world, it's like we want monitors, we want you know fixed uh, hydrants that are close to the area where it is. Um, and unfortunately, just and and this is how industry was. This was more of a reactive than proactive, and okay. nowadays. It's it's they're very proactive in, in trying to mitigate risks. But a lot and of so, cities, a lot of cities or municipalities, I shouldn't pick on cities. Yeah, a lot of yeah. municipalities don't know the risks that are there, or the powers that be, politicians, senior bureaucrats, mm-hmm. don't really want to expose that too much. Like I'm familiar with a city in Western Canada, fairly large city that has a, a, a petrochemical terminal in the city. It's not a refinery. It's really just storage mm-hmm. and distribution. It mm-hmm. comes in via pipeline, stores in tanks. The trucks come pick it up and stuff. Years ago, the, the, the plant, as you, if you want to call it that, distribution terminal, had a fire brigade and a fire truck. They had a foam, a foam you know, capable truck. And they'd given it to the city uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, saying, here, you know, we don't want this anymore. You guys take care of it for us. And uh, we count on you when there's a fire. Actually, that happened up in uh, in Bonneville uh, Regional Authority. Same thing. There's an SO plant there. And they gave the fire truck to the city as, and they give them funding to take care of their firefighting. Anyway, the city you know, had gotten rid of this truck. I show up in the late 80s, 90s, and uh, I'm aware of this because I drove fuel truck for a while. I'm aware of this terminal. And a friend of mine, actually a fire chief, used to work there that I know. And the city didn't have any big foam capability anymore. It's like, nope. so how did this get swept under the rug? And they don't know that they're responsible for this. That gap occurs. Well, same thing happened in Kingman. Yeah. yeah, exact same thing, right? Like, who's yeah. to say they even took that into account? Because I know for a fact, just working in the industry for a while, like, 
it used to be a very, like I was saying before, a very reactive rather than proactive kind of industry, right? So it's like, oh, you know, these all these safety margins that we were like, today, that's a no-brainer. Back then, it's like, well, we'd just call 911 for that. They'd come out and they'd deal with this, right? And so now, you know, it, it's it's a lot better, but I'm just thinking the lack of pre-planning, the big one that stuck out to me there was the distance from the hydrant to where the offloading is. No thought was put into that. Right. You know, yeah, did exactly. the municipality get informed by the company saying, Hey, guess what? We have a rail unloading yard. This is a huge hazard. You yeah, guys are going to need to come plan in and plan review when they built the rail yard. But the rail yard was probably there first. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the siding. But the offloading. Yeah. yeah. The offloading. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Any final thoughts? We're good. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Remember the fallen brothers. All right. Thanks for listening to another emergency traffic podcast. We appreciate your interest and hope that you find these interesting and informative. Give us a like or a thumb lap, thumbs up. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Traffic or our Facebook page, the Emergency Traffic Podcast, and Instagram. You can email us with your feedback, thoughts, opinions. I'd uh, love to hear from you at emergency traffic podcast at gmail.com.